Turns out it's haunted. The podcast covering haunted locations and spooky stories. We're your hosts, Tracy and Laura. Hello, Skeddy Cats. Hi. Oh, I looked over to you when I just saw you take a sip of your beautiful whiskey there. I was about to purr. Oh. And then to say meow. And I didn't know which one I wanted to do, so I didn't either. <laughs> Have another drink. No. I'm having little sips because I'm the Skeddy Cat. Yeah. And yeah, you are. I am. You are. I can't help it. It's just who I am. Well, this is going to be a weekly event. So yeah. it's time to harden up. Yep. Buttercup. I used to be braver. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to walk my brother down the corridor at nighttime to the toilet and sit there and wait for him because he didn't like the dark. Do you know what? I think that you would do anything for anyone, but I don't think you would do it for yourself. Mm. Like you'd be brave. That's for not other a good people. trait. Well, mm, it's not a bad trait. It has a, it has its place. Like I feel like you'd push past things that would bother you for someone else. Hopefully, that's the kind of person that you are. Well, that's kind of what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> Case in point, for our Tracy. <laughs> Yeah, for everyone, we and it must a, be good for me. We just had a chat off air about whether or not Laura should be replaced by the mats or one of the mats <laughs> or a mixture of both or whatever because she's too much of a scaredy cat. Yeah. So maybe if you think that would be a good idea, let us know in the comments. Yeah, replace Instagram. me. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's see whether we should get one of the mats or both of the mats in for a, for a spooky, spooky, turns out it's haunted story. I reckon we should... Bring them in once in a while anyway. sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That could be fun. They can meet the mats. Yeah. They can understand how hard this gig is. The matty mats. (laughs) That'd be cool. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Tracy, what have you got for us all? Okay. So my son, Harley, my eldest, was going to go to the movies last Thursday night and he was going to watch – no, sorry – the weekend, the long weekend. I'm so confused with days. Oh, yes. Got to. Sunday night. Right. He was going to go and watch the latest installment of The Conjuring. Okay. Which is The Conjuring 3. And so I thought that it would be really cool and timely to do an episode based on um, really just breaking down the three movies, but not do full reviews or anything, but just give you the background as to how or why they were made, because The Conjuring is based on a true story. Excellent. Mm-hmm. We all love a <laughs> true scary story. Uh-huh. If not on Disney. Mm. It cannot be found on Disney. No, probably not. Doesn't sound like a Disney-esque movie. Mm-mm. Not my kind. Mm-mm. No. Maybe okay. Stan. Yep. Or Netflix. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. Apple, Go on. I don't know. Eventually. So do you know who Ed and Lorraine Ed? Ed and Lorraine Warren are? Have Warren. you ever heard of them? No. Really? 
No. Oh my god. This is not my will to be the post. Ah, uh, the post. Oh my god. <laughs> Two sips of your whiskey, and I cannot you're, talk. You're anyone's. I thought you were going to say the Geens because I. <laughs> Don't do that to me in this little room. <laughs> if your head starts you spinning, head starts I am spinning. out of here. <laughs> Vomit all over you. You can have everything. I'm gone. Okay. So, all right, everyone that's listening, we're just going to pretend that the host doesn't even know who Ed and Lorraine Warren are. Yeah. Because who even are you? Not a haunted no. ghost paranormal fan. So obviously. they're investigators. So Ed and Lorraine Warren are... So Ed is a self-confessed, or he passed away, though, in 2006, I think. But he is a self-confessed demonologist. Oh, wow. And his wife, Lorraine, is, she died in 2019, self-confessed psychic medium. Or wow. clairvoyant medium, she would call herself. Or, and, and with light trance mediumship. So she was, they were very well known as Stop a husband. Stop light trans mediumship? Yeah. So she would sometimes be going into a light trance in order to channel To be the medium side of things. Oh, okay. So which is why it's big sort of personalities for your industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm, No. Big (laughs) Irish whiskey just... Yep, stuck in (laughs) one's throat over there. Yes. Um, So Ed and Lorraine, they actually are like all the way back from like the 1960s 60s, 70s, 50s even. So they basically, so Ed went to war. He was in World War II. Um, While he was in the war, when they were really young, they met each other, got married. Their daughter Judy was born just post-war. And then when he left the war, he went to art school for a couple of years. And then after that, they traveled around the States selling his art for, for money. And while they were doing that, they started to go on um, paranormal investigations. I thought and, you were about to say LSD trips. <laughs> well, maybe that too. I don't know. It these sounds guys, like it would it would have been involved. Well, there um there there are some parts of like the community, the the paranormal community love them, and others are just like, oh my god, like just see you later. So they were polarizing. Uh, well, you're about to find out a little bit more about them as we go along. Sure. So, um, when they started to do the paranormal investigations, they, they were apparently really nice people, just lovely, lovely husband and wife. Um, Judy, their daughter, um, it's reported she actually grew up with Lorraine's mum, so with her grandma, and didn't live with Ed and Lorraine because they travelled all the time around doing investigations. And in 1952, they um, founded the New England Society for Psychic Research. And so they basically were kind of like the pioneers, I guess, in doing... um, not just paranormal investigations, but they were focusing on possessions of people uh, and potential uh, demonic energies and entities within places. So they were the people that were becoming known as the ones to call or the ones to listen to if you suspected that, that might be happening in your home or to one of the people that you love. Boy. Yes, oi. So... Basically, the Conjuring franchise, um, so there's one, two, and three. Each movie is said to be based on three infamous cases that Ed and Lorraine Warren were involved in. But some of like some people will say, oh, it's so factual. Others will say some part of it is fact, some part of it is 
fiction and bullshit. Um, there is, there's been huge controversy, especially, well, basically through all their lives, but especially since, um, since Ed died in 2006, huge controversy that Ed was actually a pedophile because there's this woman named Penny who, when she was young, so there's a debate whether she was 15 to 18, it's, she was either 15 or 18, it's sort of, oh, it's different. depending in, on, yeah, depending on the source. You read. Okay. But essentially this girl named Penny lived with the Warrens in their home for like 30 years or so. 40 years. And she was pretty much, everyone knew her. Everyone knew that's where she lived and everything. Even though the daughter was not there. The daughter didn't live there. So Penny basically looked after the house when Ed and Lorraine were on the road, on the trips, doing all of their investigations and their lecturing and things like that. Between the two of them, they wrote nine books with, and they co-authored other books about, you know, their, their exorcisms and their, their demonic possession investigations and all that kind of stuff. And they were, they were making some pretty good money being kind of at the forefront of, of that and people really, really loved them, but apparently there was this this other side. And so in in the Conjuring movies, there is a lot of conjecture about whether or not um, the way that... Because um, Lorraine, even though Ed died in 2006, The Conjuring number 1 wasn't released until 2013. And Lorraine had a lot to do with the, the, the creation and the directing and the producing of that first film because she wanted it to be as factual as possible. And to not give sort of creative dramatic license to the directors and the producers to make it more than what it actually was. Because Fair. what yep. it was was freaking scary anyway. She just felt that they needed to be able to portray that and didn't need to add more into it to make it worse. So they think a lot of people think that because of Lorraine's involvement in the creation of the movie, that um, the relationship of Ed and Lorraine inside each of the three movies um was was bullshit they reckon that that she kind of and there's a clause in their contract that just says that ed can't be seen as a womanizer a pedophile uh whatever 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 and lorraine can't be seen as a whatever 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 and it's like why have you got that in your clause like unless you know that that is the truth so apparently the one of the stories go that Ed was actually in a relationship with this Penny girl from about the age of 15 and that at one stage she actually got pregnant with his child and Lorraine uh, told her that she had to have an abortion um, and the, she had the abortion. Um, but there are two sides to that story because Penny um, actually said that after Ed died but then Judy, the daughter said that it's bullshit and that she was just the house woman, like the person who just ran the house when they weren't there and that she was someone who was homeless when she was young and the the Warrens took her in and basically looked after her and that she was like a, just another member of the family. So either Judy had no fucking idea or was trying to protect her dad and her mum or some people, some like conspiracy theorists, talk about how Penny might have actually been possessed after and the things that she was saying about Ed were all due to a possession, which would be a cool turn of events, but I think a load of bullshit just quietly. Sure. So Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, very well known um, within that American sort of culture of paranormal investigation. But um, the the mo- so they, they have like a bigger franchise than just The Conjuring. So it's almost like the Ed and Lorraine Warren franchise, but not really. So... Uh, you know the movie The Saw, that that 
three series saw yeah. yeah i think so i've seen the first one the director of that directed the conjuring okay i don't know if he directed all of them but he definitely directed the last one i think the one that just got released anyway so they've you know the amityville horror movies i've heard of them yeah i'm not so, going to pretend that i've seen them yeah so there was one released like way back when and then another one released in 2000s um same story just remake um, so the Amityville Horror is based on Ed and Lorraine's um, investigations. The three Conjuring movies are based... Each each movie is based on an investigation that they've done. Um, there's another one also called... Where is it? There's another one called The Haunting, Haunting in Connecticut, um, which was based on um, the Snedeker House in Connecticut, and the Amityville Horror is the Lutz home in New York. Uh, and then there's the three Conjuring movies as well. So today, I'm because I want to do a whole episode on those other two, the Amityville Horror House. Can't um, wait. Yeah. Um, and then The Haunting in Connecticut. But today I thought I'd just focus on The Conjuring because Conjuring 3 came out. Sure. So the first Conjuring movie um, was based on uh, the, the true story of the Perron family from Rhode Island. So... Um, Back in 1971, the Perron family in January moved into a 14-bedroom sprawling farmhouse in Rhode Island. Um, The parents, Carolyn and Roger, they had five daughters. uh, And straight away, like from the minute that they moved in, they started to notice really strange things. And Caroline, you know, always being at home, she would notice things like the broom from the kitchen kept missing and then just reappearing in random places. And the kettle would almost all the time just make these really weird scratching noises as if something was inside the kettle, the kettle scratching it from the inside. Um, and there would always be um, random small piles and mounds of dirt found on the floors that she's just mopped, you know, like back then they used to mop and sweep like all the time, every day, twice a day kind of thing. And there would just always be these little piles and mounds of like almost anthills of dirt. Um And so the daughters all began to notice that there were spirits around the house. And um, even though they were mostly harmful, there were a couple of angrier ones. And this is where they started to think we need to bring someone into the house to see what's going on here because this is odd. So they'd heard about Ed and Lorraine and they invited them in. When they got there, um, Caroline tells this story about her and Roger were sitting down watching a movie one night on TV And all of a sudden she got this sharp pain in her calf and she looked down and there was a hole in her calf and just this pile of blood, like a puddle of blood that she'd bled out from her calf. They're the the stories that really freak me out, the ones that people have scratches on them or, Mm. uh, you know, that. Yeah, poltergeist stuff. So um, when... When Lorraine sat down and did a little bit of a seance or like a little bit of a a mediumship situation going on just to sort of see what was happening, she discovered that there was a... um, So this farmhouse, by the time the Perrons lived there, it uh, had gone through eight generations of the same family and then finally sold to the Perron family, which was separate to the original owners of the the house. And... um, the the house was built back like early 1800s and when it was first built and there's a photo of it that I'll put up on the socials but when it was first built 
next door in the property next door and it was huge acreage now it sits at about eight and a half acres apparently but the house next door which was the spencer farm had um had no not spencer sherman sorry had um a husband and a wife that lived there and the wife her name is uh i'm gonna like completely what's the word mess this up yeah like um butcher let's call her shirley it's either Bathsheba or Bathsheba. Oh, I like yeah. Shirley better. <laughs> so, um, cool though, cool name. Yeah. So, Queen Bath- of Sheba. Queen of Sheba. Okay, she will now be known as Queen of Sheba. Queen, Queen will do. Yeah. So, the spirit of Bathsheba was the worst of them all. And the reason why um, Lorraine believed it to be the spirit of Bathsheba that was haunting the house and sticking, you know, poking holes in Caroline's leg was because um, Bathsheba, apparently back in the early 1800s, they believed that she was a witch. Was this the neighbour? Yep. Back then. Yeah. But why would a witch do that? I'll tell you. Oh, okay. So there's records of Bathsheba being tried for the murder of a newborn baby that was in her care, who was the neighbor's baby. And the baby was found um, to have died from a knitting needle being stuck through the base of his skull up into his head and eventually piercing his brain. And that was his cause of death. And the, back then, in the early 1800s, the, obviously everyone thought that Bathsheba was a witch and she was sacrificing this baby for Satan. And other, other weird things that happened with Bathsheba too. So she has one surviving son. or well, not anymore. He's not alive now. But she had one surviving son. But she also had three other children who died before they were four. Oh, and okay. they're... The consensus that was done back then never actually recorded their birth or their death. And so they have no idea how they how they died. And they're wondering whether or not she she sacrificed them or not because their bodies were never found. Like it's just a report of them being born, but like in personal stories and journals and photographs and things. And it's like they've put it back to being her children. And then the her son has also reported having these three siblings, but no one knows how they died, and they reckon that she might have sacrificed them as well. So um, they think that the the hole in Caroline's calf was Lorraine believed it to be the exact size of a knitting needle, and so she deemed that this this demonic presence was now going to be referred to as Bathsheba. Whether it was or not, we don't know, but that's what the story ended up going with. So the story goes. Yeah. So Andrea Perron, who is the eldest of the daughters, um, reports this reported the smell of rotting flesh and spirits that would raise beds off the floor. The family lived there for 10 years and the Warrens investigated many times during that time. One time, um, Lorraine held a seance and Caroline became possessed and began starting to speak in tongues and rising from the ground in her chair, eventually being thrown across the room. And at this point, Roger decided that you guys, Warrens, out you go, like my, like, my wife's going to lose her marbles uh-huh. and I can't have that. I need her here. She, I've got five girls. Like, come on. <laughs> got to um, go to work. Yeah. And so the Warrens left and they never came back to the Perron house. And apparently the activity continued for the next 10 years and they couldn't afford to move because they bought that property. And 
Um, at one time, the um, the a pipe burst and flooded their business, which was on the land, and so they had no money and they had to they had to just stay there. And so they sold it in nineteen eighty um, in the June, and uh, in the June in the June of nineteen eighty, <laughs> um, and so the. Apparently, like after it was bought, the person who the guy who bought it was a builder, a renovator, and he bought it and moved all of his tools in, brought everyone in to start work. And apparently he he was sent off in the first week running and screaming, left all his tools, all his belongings, everything and never went back. And it stayed vacant and became run down until he finally sold it. And um, it sold through a few different houses, like few different people's hands and now the owners that are there now um they believe that it's all bullshit they reckon that every now and then they see like a door open and close on its own um they hear like people talking in one of the front rooms but aside from that they've never had anything that they felt scared or nothing that they would consider to be demonic or a possession or something that was an evil force um but the thing is though that I'm kind of like in two minds about The Conjuring 1 movie because there is a lot about that house that lends you to think that I can see why um, the Warrens were so fascinated by it because there is this um, book called The Black Book of Burrellville, um, which was back then in the 1800s with the town's record book. So that's what they called it, the Black Book of Burrowville. So I love that. What a great title. <laughs> I imagine it being black leather bound with gold writing. Do you? Don't you? Mm, no. Oh, okay. So <laughs> it's just mine. <laughs> the records kept in there show that on that plot of land that this house was built, two suicides by hanging, one suicide by poison, the rape and murder of an 11-year-old Prudence Arnold, who was the original owner's daughter by a farmhand, two drownings, four men who froze to death, and other tragic losses of life. Yep. So this place has seen some shit. All on that space. All in that house and space. Well, that'd do it. That'd do it. So you can see why... Um, there is that case that lends towards definitely paranormal going on. I cannot understand how, like, someone like Lorraine and Ed, who are supposed to be so well-respected in the industry, could think that they automatically know that Bathsheba was the energy doing it based off a knitting needle, like, sized hole in Carolyn's, like, calf. Considering there's all of these things that have happened, yeah, like I don't think that Bathsheba, who would be the least likely, it kind of feels like it would be an urban legend or like a folklore that, you know, stories that get passed down. Sure. Well, it could also be that that lady picked a scab on the back of a calf and didn't realise. It was a hole. Well, she like picked a, a hole. hole. <laughs> and one of the daughters, Andrea, she went on to write a book um, called... I think in the darkness, in the light, I think it's called. Um, and, um, you know, she talks about oh, house of darkness, house of light. Um, and she goes on and talks about how these experiences were very real. She's very vocal. Uh, she, um, I don't, I, there's, there's parts of me that just think that she's jumped on the bandwagon of being able to make money. 
because uh, she was the oldest of of the of the daughters um and Christine, who is the second, so there's Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cynthia, and April. Christine, the middle child, she will not talk about any of it. And whether that is silence because it's bullshit or silence because won't talk about it because can't bring that shit up, too scary, not going back there. Maybe she just has no interest in the public life and making public statements as well. Maybe. You know, that could easily lend to someone not making any statements. I just don't want to. Maybe. I don't know. Um, and then, so that's, that's what the first Conjuring movie is based on. So Can I ask, how long did that family live there for? You um, probably said it and I missed it. Ten, for about 10 years. So they bought Quite the house in 1971 and they left in 1980. They were probably wondering why they got that house for such a bargain basement price, maybe. Well, yeah, I'm not sure they did. And they actually talk about how, um, the, uh, Perron family weren't told about, previous paranormal activity in the house so they don't know if there was okay um because by law in that state back then you didn't need to of course give that information it's much more of a newer thing Mm. yeah so that is the story of the conjuring one movie and it's based on the perron family excellent i don't need to watch it now (laughs) in rhode island um so yeah apparently that's the one that's probably got the most the movie i haven't seen them Yep. I, it's not my kind of thing to watch them. Um, but apparently that's the movie that was released before Lorraine passed away and it's the one that is the most factual out of the three of the Conjuring series. According to Lorraine's depiction of it. Correct. Because she had the handle on the production mm-hmm. and all of that. Yeah. Okay. And then the second Conjuring movie, Conjuring 2, uh, was based on one of their investigations called the Enfield Poltergeist. Poltergeist. The Enfield Poltergeist. Um, so back in August 30, 1977, mum Peggy Hodgson, who was a single mum. Peggy. Peggy. Um, claimed uh, that the haunting of the home began literally the first night that they were there when her daughter, um, Janet, uh, ran out and said to her mum, the boys' beds are, are shaking and wobbling and I don't know why. They're asleep and their beds are shaking. So the mum comes running in and the mum's just like, be quiet, you're being silly, the boys are awake, you know, stop mucking around, go to sleep. And then night after night after night, things furniture just kept rattling. So they finally got the mum to come in and while she walks in, she sees the big solid four timber chest of drawers just go from one end of the room to the other end of the room like it's been violently pushed. No. And she was standing there trying to push it back and the force was so strong against her and there was no one there pushing it. So that's when she decided, okay, it's not the kids being kids. I got to do something about this. I love how parents are like, don't be silly, don't be silly. And then they're like, oh, actually, I'm going to listen to you now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so apparently she had, um, she contacted the Warrens. Um, I think the, I think it was this one where I heard that she'd actually seen the Warrens talk about ghosts and things like that. So they were obviously very well known at this point. But this is over in England. So they went they had oh, to go all wow. the way over to Enfield in England. Okay. Um and so the Warrens came over and um in the in this movie though, apparently the Warrens only came one time. And they didn't really find anything unusual. They didn't believe to be possessed. They didn't, they just didn't think anything 
was really that wrong. And so they left. But they in the end, they based a whole freaking movie on, on the Ed and Lorraine Warren's experience with the Enfield poltergeist. So it's really the probably the movie that's got the most um, the most bullshit, the most sort of made up. Um, the storyline's real, yeah. but all the details are very not real. Where did they, well, I suppose the artistic licence comes in, I was going to say, where did they get their information from then? They might have interviewed other people, that, but they might not have. Well, they interviewed Janet, the daughter. So Janet, to this day, is very vocal about her experiences. Oh, that's the daughter that lived the there. The daughter, yeah. Okay. So, um, so Janet apparently was levitating off the bed at one point. And not in a fun way. No. Not in a whole new world magic carpet ride. Well, this is where it gets a little bit funny because some I was reports, being funny. Yes. Yeah, Go on. I know. Sorry. Some reports were saying that it was like an inch or two off the bed. There are photos, very well known photos. Photos. That I will put on Instagram of real life photos taken. Not where you doctored. can see no, you can see Peggy sitting in the bottom corner of the right-hand corner of the photo. And what you see in the photo is two beds. And it's a series of four photos and they move them really fast to make it sort of look like you can get the effect. A moving picture. Kind of, but they're still photos. And so in the bed that's on the right-hand side of the picture is two little children sleeping. You can see like two really little children sleeping, but one of them's awake and kind of moving around. And in the other bed on the left-hand side is Janet, who is the oldest sibling of them all. And she's like... In the air, but she claimed, and, and there's four photos of her in the air, but it literally looks like she's just jumped and she's like doing like a full like karate style, like, yeah, you know, grasshopper pose. Because who's taking the photo? I, I have no idea. But um, these photos are supposed to be evidence that she was being thrown by a demonic force. Oh, being thrown. Out of her bed. And in two of them it was thrown and two of them it was levitating above her bed. It's but at the same, like all at the same Sounds night. Sounds el dodgy. So dodgy. It's just like this is crazy. And then apparently a priest came. So to do an exorcism, which we're going to do an episode on exorcisms, but to yes, do an please. exorcism, yep. Ed and Lorraine Warren, they would do what they referred to as lesser exorcisms because they were actually devout Catholics and – Exorcisms actually can't be performed unless you have, um, unless you're a priest, a nun, a shaman, or someone in power who has been exercised the right to, um, oh, okay, to perform an exorcism. So not even a demonologist can do that. No. Okay. So they would perform lesser exorcisms, which in the Conjuring Three, the movie that just dropped, they actually do that, which is crazy. But anyway. So <laughs> yeah, in, order anyway. to, in order to have the Vatican or your local um, parish, your bishop, whatever it is, say that, yes, you need an exorcism, you have to have first gone under medical diagnosis and make sure that it's not a mental illness or a psychological or psychiatric disorder that's causing this possession, so to speak. I love the amount of bunny ears you're throwing at me throughout <laughs> this recording. It's, it's a joy so, to behold. Yeah. So they actually called the local priest. So the mum, Peggy, called the local priest and the priest and the police came. And there is, and this is where I feel like um, where it really kind of 
change the the journey or the the direction of this whole story being bigger than what it was because two of the police that arrived one was a male and one was a female and the female police actually signed an affidavit saying that she saw a chair levitate off the ground and move about four foot in one direction and she saw it with her two eyes and nothing could have like made it happen because she checked to make sure so that kind of gave a little bit of credit to the situation yeah yeah some street cred there but what did the other one say that too no okay just she did okay and then the priest that was there apparently um apparently he caught janet faking it twice okay and she admits on on report saying, yeah, we might have faked it a couple of times, but they always caught us. They always knew we were faking it. And it's just like, man, you, like one minute it sounds like so fucking real and the next minute it's just like, man, I don't know. Like how am I supposed to take it seriously? I'm a goner. If someone's faking it, <laughs> no, done. You're done. So um, reports are too that the priest was called and the police was called because at one time, stop, sorry. That's at one okay. time, Janet was sitting in the in the chair that levitated, but she was sitting in the chair, and all of a sudden she became possessed and she turned into um, like a a different kind of person. And apparently, she said that he she was Bill Will uh, Bill Wilkins, who was the man who lived in the house previous to Peggy and her children, and she. According to reports, she had no prior knowledge as to how Bill died or that Bill lived there. <coughs> Sorry. Was that meant to be a sneeze or a cough? I was trying to hold it back for so long. I'll just write that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Are you ready to <laughs> carry on? Yeah. So she's sitting in the chair and uh, she starts talking as if she is talking to or talking as this man named Bill. And without any prior knowledge to how he died or anything or even that he lived in the house and that someone died there, she starts saying how she died. And you know how, like, as a medium, I take people through or people take me through how they died or spirits take me through how they died yeah. and I share it? Um, she starts talking about how he had this happen and this happen. And then I, my brain bred, uh, my brain bled. Yeah. And so, um, the police and the priest actually confirmed that the previous owner was named Bill Wilkins and that he had actually died of a brain hemorrhage and died in the chair that she was sitting in. Oh, gross. And was found a couple of days later with dead in the chair from a brain hemorrhage. So she did not. No, that apparently though? she didn't know. Was there any way? Apparently, you know that no she... prior knowledge, and she took on a male voice, um, and and said all this information, and then it was confirmed later on. So it wasn't a publicly known detail about. Apparently not. Okay. Um, now in the movie, um, there is a famous scene where they come into the house, and it's a wall of little crosses, and in the movie, all the crosses have been turned upside down. So Peggy and the girls have placed the crosses there. Uh, to protect the house because Catholic, Christian, God, no no demons, can't be here. Um, and they came into the room and all the crosses are upside down. That's actually a fictional um, element to the story. And the Enfield poltergeist apparently is the most fictional out of the three of the series. Um, but what's interesting was that um, Janet ended up leaving when she was 16 and getting married really young and having a baby and leaving. 
Um, and Jonathan, who or Johnny, um, who was one of the brothers, um, he died at the age of 14 in the house from cancer. Uh, and the other brother, Billy, so there's a daughter as well, and she doesn't really talk about anything, and I can't even, I didn't even write down her name. But um, the other brother, Billy, he lived in the house with Peggy until she died in the home, and then he left, and he just said, through his whole life living there with his mum, basically it just, there was no real kind of scary activity once Janet had left, but it was all just, it just felt like someone was always watching you and they just always felt like they were being watched. And so they just tried to do the right thing and be on, like, behave and... Um, Not upset the watcher. Yeah. And so basically because Janet's out of the house, it's sort of, it's, it's all calmed down now. Um, but... There were there were neighbours that were called over. Apparently one night Peggy had had enough and she went to the next door neighbours and called them over and the husband and wife came over and the husband went through and he's just like, I'm walking through the house. And it sounded like there were kids running up and down the hallway, knocking on the walls. And as, as they got closer to you, the knocks would get louder and then you would hear them run away and the knocks would get quieter and knocking on the ceilings. And he's like, there's no one in the house except for me and my wife. And so how can these knocks be there? Um, objects moving. Um, so apparently, people would hear growling and barking. Ooh, yeah, not so, like from a dog or no, from, from a from demonic style. Yeah, yeah. from a disembodied, disembodied voice, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Great. So this is kind of one of those ones where it's just like, man, like I feel like you really took artistic, dramatic, creative license in, in the making of this story. And I'd really like to, as a movie would for sure. But considering the number one was, was so like Lorraine was so like, we have to make it so factual. And then number two, it's just like out the window. Well, factual according to her, but still it might not have even been like you, you have mentioned the clauses. So we'll, well, it's there. massive. Like, there's a nine hundred million dollar law, um, like lawsuit against um the creators of the movie or the directors of the movie. I think what number two? Uh, for all of them, in the way that um, since Penny's story came out, the young girl that lived with them, yes, um, in the way that uh Ed and Lorraine's characters were played in the movies was of two loved up people who just only had eyes for each other and were completely in love with each other. When, when Ed was actually a pedophile that Lorraine was covering up for and enabling. Well, this is this is a major aspect that's probably not going to get much airplay in this episode, but especially in today's climate, it will not go unnoticed and unacknowledged. That Well, it has that is huge. Years. So hopefully the number three one that's out might bring it back into the spotlight. But the thing is, we'll we see. don't know whether Penny, because it's Penny against Judy, their daughter, we don't know who's telling the truth. It's really all just hearsay because Ed's dead and Lorraine's dead. And Lorraine apparently protected Ed to the nth. Yep. But he apparently used to also hit Lorraine. And so Penny talks about how he used to hit her so bad that she would black out. Why so, would she lie? Because of the money. Because yep. they had fame, notoriety and money. Um, and if you look at photos of them, to be honest, when I, I've never liked them. I'm interested in what they've done. Um, but there's something about them that just gives me the creeps. Creepy. Yeah. yeah. So maybe I'll put that on the socials and you guys can tell me what you think about them and whether they give you the creeps. But it's certainly an important element to be aware of as we're going through these. Yeah. So the last movie that just dropped is The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. Holy shit. And so this is based on a true story um, where uh, in 1981... So the year that I was born, 
Hello, 40-year-olds. Um, <laughs> in 1981, a man, a 19-year-old man by the name of Arne Shane Johnson um, and his 26-year-old girlfriend, Debbie, they were having lunch and drinks with Debbie's boss, a 40-year-old Alan Bono. And apparently um, Debbie was there and Arne was there and they had Arne's two younger sisters with them who were nine and six, I think, or nine and 12, whatever. Um, but basically, Alan Bono, Debbie's boss, was getting a little bit drunk, a little bit rowdy, and apparently he was a little bit of a, you know, his hands would wander sometimes. Handsy. So, yeah. Completely you know, normal that for that time. Weird drunk uncle. The that's good old corner. 80s. Yeah. Um, so Debbie was just like, we're out of here. We're going to get the girls and, and we're going to go. But apparently the boss, Bono, kind of got a little bit upset about that. And so him and Arne had a bit of a tussle and Arne ended up pulling out his pocket knife and stabbing Bono four or five times. Yikes. Um, and Not a warning stab. Oh, gosh, definitely killed not him. a warning. Right. Not okay. killed him. So um, the next day um, it was all over the news that this had happened and the phone rings, the local police station, and it's Ed and Lorraine Warren who throw a bit of a spanner in the works and say that a couple of months prior to that day that the murder was done by Arne, a couple of months prior... The Warrens had been called to this holiday house, oh no, to the home of Debbie's parents. Mm -hmm. And so Debbie had a couple of other siblings. One of them was 11-year-old David. David, Arne and Debbie had gone away for a couple of days to a, like an Airbnb type situation not back in 1981, but you know, like a breakfast type situation. Yep, little holiday um, house. Yes, for a couple of days. And whilst there, David, Debbie's younger brother, who was 11, claimed to have seen um, an old man in the room and that this old man violently pushed him and shoved him and his face into a waterbed that was in that room. And he told... Arn and Debbie about this and he was petrified apparently and then when they came home since he'd been home for the last little while his parents had noticed that he was violent erratic would start growling and speaking in this really weird voice and yelling and just really strange behavior and it was very different to what their normal 11 year old son was like so they called the Warrens and the Warrens came out and did a bit of an assessment and they actually discovered that um, when Lorraine tried to speak to David, David listed 43 demons, the names of 43 demons that were inside of him. Holy smokes. So the mum, once again, here's another case of where the mum turns around and says, well, I don't want this. So they contacted the priests and the priest said, you have to go and be psychiatric, like, psychiatrically assessed yeah um and she said uh-uh they're just gonna like stick needles in him and do tests and i don't want that to happen to my son so instead she trusted ed and lorraine warren to be able to exercise this boy and so they they performed a lesser exorcism so again not supposed to do that unless you're ordained and and been given the catholic right to to do that or whatever their language is yeah um so apparently um, Ed and Lorraine were there with um, David and Arne was there as well during this exorcism. 
And during the exorcism, David was writhing and, you know, like contorting in all different shapes and sizes and everything because these, these 43 demons were coming out of him. And apparently during that process, Arne was standing there um, say, and screaming, saying, take me, like leave him and take me, like just just come into me, take me. Well, it would have been horrendous yeah, to see. awful. Yeah. It would have been Awful to see. Anyway, so Lorraine and Ed both claim that, that that's what Anne was saying. And that's what happened by the sounds. Well, when they called the police station, they said um, this he was not of sane mind. He is possessed by a demon. We have we have facts. We have proof that this is what happened. Here's, here's all our information. We're on our way. Here's the information. And so... Um, what was interesting to the police at that time and to the defence lawyer for Arne was that Arne actually said to the police when they arrived, I think I've done something bad, as if, like, he didn't remember doing it or didn't really intentionally do it but had realised, oh, shit, like, I've done something bad once he came sort of to himself. And so they saw that as proof that he must have been possessed when he killed this. Who saw that as proof? The police. It's amazing and the defense that lawyer. they would see that as proof. Mm. That's amazing. That he was possessed. Yes. So it was one of the first cases. Um, so, 1981, um, one of the first cases where the um, the judge. So it didn't go before a jury. It went before a judge, where the judge was forced to to deal with demonic possession as a um, as a defense, and they did everything they possibly could to present that this was a defence um, and he, they didn't accept it. They, the judge ended up saying that, um, that um, there definitely wasn't enough uh, factual evidence and information and knowings to be able to say this is a demonic possession, um, that all protocols weren't followed along anyway, um, that psychiatric help wasn't, wasn't assessed um, and so he ended up being charged with first-degree manslaughter. Um, he got the manslaughter charge because they don't think that he intentionally set out to kill him, even yeah, okay. if, like, it, it was more just a stab. Yeah. Um, so there was not, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, he hadn't there set no the intention. There was no planning to murder. It was more in yeah. the moment. Yeah. Um, and that he... That he didn't really mean to kill him. It was more of a tussle and a protection, apparently. Anyway, so um, he got sentenced to 10 to 20 years for the killing. Uh, he only served five. And that whole entire time, he and Debbie stayed together. And Debbie totally believed that he had been possessed by this devil that they called the Beast. Um, and they are still together apparently and went on and when he got out of jail lived a happily ever after life with with Debbie and did their family and everything and put it all behind them but when the conjuring three the devil made me do it um was being talked about and in production David the 11 year old boy who had had the lesser exorcism with the 43 devils inside of him demons and his older brother who was 16 at the time of all this happening Carl um, they actually sued the studios and took them to court to try and put a stop order into The Conjuring and into the books that were being written about this as well because, um, first of all, Carl said it was all bullshit and that he witnessed all of these like things that the Lorraines would talk about with the family um, to, to make money 
And he reported all these conversations that he'd overheard about Ed saying, I can make you lots of money, book, movie, we'll make a movie out of this. And he's like, it was like living hell, living through that because they were all just saying that my brother was sick and he had undiagnosed mental health issues and now I'm his full-time carer and you're bringing up a shitload of like of trauma and this is re-traumatizing us. So re-traumatizing and making so much money from correct yeah and now he didn't want any money he just didn't basically didn't want the story to be told he wanted it to rest um and his family had already been torn apart by what had happened so he just wanted it to stop and so they were successful in the point that they got the book stopped and there was no money to be made from the book but they weren't successful in the movie because the movie the the people who tried that case for, for the that lawsuit decided that there, were, there was too much sort of artistic license being applied to the movie to really to really worry about the facts in, in the case and that, that they were... It's just a movie. It's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story. And it's only if you choose to believe in this part that it becomes anything but a story. And so in the end, a story or a truth, it really just depends on your perception essentially. Um, but it's... It's um, definitely going to be interesting to see what happens, if anything happens after this with any of the other cases that they've done now that Lorraine's gone and Ed's gone. It's going to also be interesting to see whether this brings any more light into Penny and her claims because she's still around. Um, And also if When the Devil Made Me Do It being out has kind of any fallback onto David and Carl and even Arne and Debbie who are still out there. You just don't know. Did they change the names at least for the movie, do you know? Well, The Devil Made Me Do It was not a direct quote, but it was basically what Arne said in terms of it wasn't me, it was the demons. So they definitely didn't change the title. Whoa. Yeah. It's um, it's a strange world we live in when people can have stories of their history be retold and made into movies without them even having any kind of power over it well in the i mean i guess in a lot of genres that happens um but in in this genre absolutely like you've got to think of the exorcist the exorcist has got like four different famous or infamous exorcisms that are documented all kind of pushed into one um one of the other um movies that the um one of the other movies that the Warrens also played a part in was Annabelle. Oh, okay. Um, Annabelle, I've the heard of it. Doll. Yeah, yeah, the doll. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that story is actually quite a, you know, quite a really simple story that was a very short period of time. And they took the doll in possession and kept it with them until she died and they until Lorraine died. And they created an occult museum of artifacts and now bloody Zach Bagans or Zach Baggins as everyone else laughs at he's, he's the um the front man of Ghost Adventures um or Ghost Hunters Ghost Adventures and um he's now got the the leading occult museum of artifacts and haunted things like that over in the states but um they made a whole movie out of Annabelle based on this tiny little story and then they just blew it up and Unfortunately, the story is about um, a girl. Her name was Donna, maybe? I can't remember. But um, she received a doll for her birthday from her mum when she was 26. 
a Raggedy Ann doll. Raggedy Ann dolls were out. It was the first time and apparently she really liked dolls. So now that there was this new Raggedy Ann doll out, her mum bought it for her. She was studying nursing and she was living with a roommate who was also studying nursing. And the day that they brought the doll home, all these weird things kept happening. The doll kept moving around and one of the one of the nurses had a male friend over for the night. Ooh. Um, and apparently the doll attacked him and scratched him. Um, and he felt like a burning sensation. And he was just like, "What the fuck? Like, <laughs> I'm not. I yeah, this must have been I'm one nighter." I'm here to study anatomy. Yeah, like, I'm not coming back. <laughs> it was nice to know you. I'm ghosting you. Weird. Um, literally. Yeah, and so they called the Warrens to come and have a look, and it turns out that um that the building that they were living in, the flats that they were living in, was built on top of a uh, like a just a plot of land. And back before the building was there, a young girl who was 11's body was discovered naked. Um, she'd been murdered and she'd been dumped on that land. And so Lorraine came in and said, this is the, the doll is possessed by this young little girl. I'm taking the doll and it's coming home with me. And then they made a whole movie about it. Wow. And so there is a lot of exploitation in this genre of people's stories that are quite horrific. And in our episodes coming up where I, where I break down some serious exorcisms, like it is so heart-wrenchingly sad and awful and so disturbing what happens to these people and what people let happen to them getting caught up in the bullshit that is, all of that when this people, world yeah, yeah what well, can be that's what I like about this podcast so I like how you covered that story and I like how you covered where it's from and I like how we get to talk about the real people behind these stories that don't necessarily like they've been swept up in it but that's not necessarily their choosing mm. but there's real people here and here are these massive blockbuster movies being made and we seem to forget that there's people that are involved with this that have no power over being dragged into it mm-hmm. and it's their story like it's yeah. their day-to-day life living with with this like can you imagine and the big business movies are just like we must make entertainment mm-hmm. where's the ethical side of that yeah i mean if you're gonna like take from stories like annabelle for example and make a movie you know there, there's got to be a certain level of um of awareness behind the real story that's there. Or de-identify and, it so the, these people don't get dragged into it. Yeah. Because clearly it's, you know. It's really freaking obvious It's easy it's about. to trace it back. Yeah. Very obvious. So yeah. don't do that. Well, it's, it's a huge franchise that's made a lot of people a lot of money. Money talks. Yeah. And these days there's not many movies out in this genre. So people are looking for scary movies that aren't stupidly, like, you know, laughable because the effects are so bad. I'm not looking for them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely not looking for them. Obviously the directors of these movies are really good at directing this genre. And so people who are cult fanatics of of the paranormal um, are going to go. And, you know, like... My son wanted to go because he's just like, oh, you know, it's scary. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, why are you going? He's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, that age too, I really, I was into it as well. Oh, me too. Yeah, that age, it just, it is. It's just what you do. Yeah. And people will get a little bit excited and addicted to it all. Like, I'm such a visual person. That's that why rush. I can't watch them. Yeah. I can read it and I can talk about it and I can hear it. But if I see it, I can't get it out of my head. Right. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> just don't like any of it anymore. Mm. 
So that's the background behind the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine, and behind the Conjuring franchise. Um, but that is not the last that you will hear of Ed and Lorraine, let me tell you, because there's Amityville, there's Connecticut, there's Annabelle. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Ed and Lorraine. Ed and Lorraine Warren. Wonderful. Rest in peace. Well, they're both <laughs> gone now. They are. Thank you, Tracy. You're welcome. For enlightening us all <laughs> on all of what turns out is haunted is all about. And if you've watched any of the Conjuring movies, let us know. Send us what you think. Send us whether you thought it was like silly or whether it was actually really scary. What's your favorite part? What's your least favorite part? Um, yeah, tell us. Share. Because we're not going to watch it. <laughs> Do it and tell us, like, just because you like haunted stuff, do you like scary movies? You might not, but you might. We'll hear from you. Talk to you later. Bye. Got a spooky story you'd like us to share or a haunted location you'd like us to cover? Send us an email at tospsychic at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at turnsout underscore it's haunted. We'd appreciate a follow, a share, a rating, a review. Whatever flights you Sleep well, my scaredy cats.